Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. As you can see, we have entered the 21st century. <laughs> Kicking and screaming, but uh, we are here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. So we continue our our series in, in this book. So I'm going to read, read the chapter and then, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. So First, first Chronicles 13 from verse 1. It says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahiah were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So if if you grew up in a Christian home, went to Sunday school, you're probably familiar with this story. Um, even maybe if, you, if you're not that familiar with Christianity, you might, may well have heard this story 
and it is a, a controversial story. I, I think it's one of those stories that people use to say, well, this is why I'm not a Christian. Uh, here is this poor guy just trying to help, just trying to do the right thing, and God kills him. You know, how can you worship a God like that? How can you serve a God who is so malicious, uh, so malevolent, so capricious, so just nasty? Uh, and they use examples like this to look at this man, Uzzah. They say, well, it sounds legitimate, doesn't it? I mean, uh, how many of us would probably do the same thing? It sounds as though they're just trying to be sincere. And isn't sincerity what it's all about? I have some quotes here from Confucius. Well, one from Confucius. Sincerity is the way to heaven, Confucius says. Another person, Jean Giraudot, said, The secret of success is sincerity. And I think most people would think that. They say, well, as long as you're sincere, you're okay. As long as you're sincere in what you believe and what you do and why you do certain things, that's all that is needed. But what we're going to see in this passage is that uh, that is not the case. You can be sincerely wrong. I remember probably 15 years ago, I was watching uh, Larry King live. And uh, <clears throat> he was interviewing at the time. I didn't know who this man was. Uh, a man called Al Mola. Many of you probably heard of him. And uh, he, La Larry King, he's not a, not a believer comes from a Jewish background, but I, I don't think he's a, he was a practicing Jew. And he was challenging Al Mola on the, on, the, on the Christian faith. And he said, are you saying that if someone does not believe in Jesus Christ, um, they will go to hell? He's, and he said, uh, what if they're sincere? And Al Mola said this, he said, well, there are many sincere people in hell. Uh, and that is the truth. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. So, Go back to verse 1. The first thing we see in the first few verses is that, uh, remember the story already, David has been anointed as king of Israel. All the people have gathered and it's been a wonderful time of rejoicing. The chronicler is showing that David is, is uh, God's anointed. He is the one chosen by God and by all the people, by all the tribes, even the tribe of Benjamin where Saul is from. And now David comes and he gathers the people together and, and really wise leadership here. And he says, look, what we need to do is go and fetch the ark. It's in this city, this town called Kiriath-Jerim. We need to bring it to Jerusalem. And he says here in verse 3, he says, we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And the ark of the covenant is, represents the presence of God. And here the chronicler says, or David says, we didn't seek God's presence during the time of Saul. And as we've seen already in Chronicles, that's a, a major theme. Uh, what angers God, the reason for the, the, the nation of Israel being sent into captivity was because they did not seek the Lord. And what it means to seek the Lord is, is to live your whole life with respect to Him, to live with an undivided heart towards Him, to love Him, to serve Him. And Saul did not have that. And David wants to have that. And so everyone agrees it's a good thing to do. So they... They gather all the people, and if you look at verse 5, um, it says, from the Nile of Egypt to Lebahamath. That's the biggest geographical area uh, recorded in the scripture for the nation of Israel. Uh, we're not certain that they ever actually inhabited all of that area, 
uh, or really conquered all of that area. So all the way from Egypt all the way up, uh, right up into Assyria. Uh, it's a massive area that was promised them. But this is a, a big area saying that the people were united behind David. And the ark is in Kiriath-Jerim. So how did it end up there? Kiriath-Jerim is a city to the, to the west of Jerusalem towards the area of the Philistines. Well, in 1 Samuel 4, we're told about uh, the, the, the nation of Israel fighting with the Philistines, and they lost this battle. And so they're very sad, and they think, well, what we'll do is we'll get the Ark of the Covenant. That will be our lucky charm. They were actually superstitious. They thought if we get the Ark of the Covenant to help us, uh, we won't lose. We'll be okay, because God would never allow his Ark to be, to be damaged. Uh, but they were wrong. They were defeated, and um, uh, there were horrific consequences there. But the Philistines were rejoicing. They took the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it even into the temple of their false god, Dagon. And it's quite a humorous account because they, they think, you know, this little, this little uh, box, because the Ark is, uh, was a, a box about 1.3 meters long, about 0.8 meters tall and about 0.8 meters wide. So not, not massive, nothing um, you know, that you would go away saying this is incredible. And then on top of it, it had these statues of cherubim with their wings uh, covered and uh, pointing together and joined together. So they'd bring this ark into their temple and they had this great statue of their god, Dagon, and they put this little, little box in front of Dagon. And the next morning... Uh, their god Dagon has collapsed and he collapses again. Eventually his head and his hands fall off just showing that uh, the god of the Philistines is impotent. Uh, it was a common thing for uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world when, when a nation conquered another nation that they would behead the king and cut off his hands as well to show that uh, he is powerless. And that's exactly what the Lord does. And so the Philistines think, well, uh, let's... Let's get rid of this thing. We'll move it around uh, the, the, the land of the Philistines. And everywhere it goes, it brings tumors. Everyone, people start getting sick. God is judging the Philistines. And so eventually they say, look, let's, let's put it on a cart and let's get rid of it, see where it goes. And uh, it leaves and goes to a place called Beth Shemesh in Israel. And... Uh, the people in Beth Shemesh are quite intrigued, and so they open it. They want to have a look inside. You know, let's open it and see what's inside. And God kills 70 men uh, because they were not allowed to, to do that. And so they say, well, let's send it to this other city. And they send it to Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where it stayed for all this time during the reign of uh, King Saul. And so that's how it ends up there. So they go up there. Look at verse 6. They go up to Kiriath-Jerim. To bring the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Now, isn't this, this is powerful language here. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. The ark was really a throne. That's the idea. It was a symbolic throne. It was the place where God symbolically would, would sit. The name of the Lord, called by the name of the Lord. And you know that phrase is important, even when we come to the New Testament. There is salvation in no other name, but in the name of the Lord. And name here refers to, in fact, the, the Hebrew Hashem 
the name is to say that uh, God's character is revealed in all the titles, all the names that he has. He is the name, the name of the Lord. It is God's symbolic place of, of, of special place or special presence in the nation of Israel. And so the ark represents, and you can go and read in scripture, the throne of God and even the footstool of God. And so wherever the ark was, it symbolized that God was in control. God was the one who was in charge. Uh, just as ancient kings, if they set up their throne in a city, it meant that the king had arrived and he was in charge. And so David says he wants to bring this ark back to, to Jerusalem. He wants to honor God. He wants to, God to be enthroned in Jerusalem. And the ark is this powerful image because it represents the gospel. Uh, within the ark of the covenant was the law, the Ten Commandments. So there were two tablets of stone. You remember that God wrote it with his own finger. Okay, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And I believe that he wrote ten on each tablet. And one tablet was just as we have contracts and covenants today. And both parties get copies. So it was at that time. Of course, God didn't need to take his copy with him. And so there were the two copies placed into the ark. And then it was covered. And the law really showed us our sin and our unworthiness and that we are broken before God. It's a mirror to reveal what we look like. Every single human being is a lawbreaker. How is it that we're going to be right with God? And so the, later on in, in Jewish history, when they built the temple and they put the ark into an area called the Holiest of Holies that was separated with a curtain, only the high priest would go in once a year. And it's a frightening picture. First he would try and fill the holiest of holies with incense, because he was petrified. A rope was tied around his ankle, because it may well be that God was not happy. And what would God do? God would put him to death. God was angry with the sins of Israel, and the high priest, as the representative of the nation, could well be put to death. And so he tries to, I think, fill the room with incense. Maybe God won't see me. Uh, maybe I can just go in there. And he had to take blood. There had to be a sacrifice and the, the ark was sprinkled with blood to say the only way that man can live in relationship with a holy God is through sacrifice, through blood sacrifice. There has to be death. And of course that points us to, to the gospel, the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the ark of the covenant is incredibly rich and symbolic and we'll unpack that more as we go along. And so David has this wonderful idea to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It is the capital. It is the city of David. We saw that he conquered it. And verse 7 tells us now how they did it. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. So they, they, they built a new cart. Sounds very good. And they get... Uh, two men to drive the cart and they have these oxen there and uh, it sounds good but uh, they got the idea for this from the Philistines uh, that's exactly how the, the Philistines transported the ark and you can read in 1 Samuel 6 verse 7 now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows and carries on like that and that's exactly what they did they prepared a new cart got some cows, and put the Ark of the Covenant on it. And that's how they transported it. And we'll see that's a big problem. 
Verse 8, And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Uh, and so they're praising God, they're worshipping God. This sounds so good. They're rejoicing. They want to bring the ark to Jerusalem. This is, surely they're all sincere. Isn't this wonderful? This, is, this seems to be the right thing that they're doing. Uh, they all seem to be sincere. They're rejoicing. They're praising God. They're using all the instruments that God had given them to praise Him with. It's a joyful scene. It's a parade. And then we come to verse 9. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And so as they're going on this journey, and they're all rejoicing uh, as they get near to this threshing floor, maybe there's a rut or something like that, but one of the oxen stumbles and the Ark of the Covenant starts to slide off. And Uzzah and his, his brother Ahio are there. They're guiding this cart. And, and what does he do? He puts out his hand to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling onto the ground. It seems perfectly natural. It seems like the right thing to do. It seems probably like you're, we're all thinking, I would do something like that. And then God kills him. An immediate end, you can imagine, it's like those movie scenes, you know, when someone walks into a pub and they stop playing the piano. Uh, <laughs> immediately, all the instruments stop. Fear comes upon everyone. God has killed this man because he, he's just trying to help. What is going on here? What does this story mean? Why is it being given to us? As I've been saying over and over again, the Old Testament is full of narrative. Most of the Bible is narrative. Most of us think in stories naturally. But because of modernism and maybe a, a certain hermeneutics, modern hermeneutics, and uh, overreactions against uh, charismatic preaching, uh, many Christians battle to understand the stories from the Bible and the symbolism and the richness and what they're pointing to. But God has condescended, as John Calvin said, God, God lists to us. He comes down to our level and he draws pictures for us. God could have dropped a systematic theology for us, but praise God he didn't. We are a lot less Christians, I'm sure, if God had given us a systematic theology. He doesn't. He gives us pictures. Many, many stories that stay with us and they're trying to tell us something. What is going on here? God gives us a powerful picture here. Later on in chapter 15, and we'll come to that um, in time, not today, uh, David try, moves the, 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 the ark again. And he calls the Levites in verse 12, and he consecrates them and all of these things. And he says in verse 13, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek Him according to the rule. You see, the Scripture tells us, why did God kill Uzzah? They had not come to God. They had not worshipped Him. They had not come to Him in the way that He had prescribed. Exodus 25 says, when you move the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant had golden rings on its side and there were poles 
that were made to fit through and only the Levites were able to carry it. God said, when you, when you move this throne, when you move this ark, this is how you do it. And so God prescribes how we worship him. God prescribes how we are saved, how we come to him. Because he is God. It's not a matter of sincerity, ultimately. It's sincerity and obedience to do what he says. To come how he says. You know this. If you were to go to any monarch, if you were to go to the Queen of England, if you could speak to, to Pastor Lela about visiting the, the Zulu king who, who he likes to boast his family is uh, close to. Okay? <laughs> uh, but there is a way, isn't there? There's a protocol. You cannot come however you like. You cannot high-five. You, no matter how sincere you are, you can't just go give a big bear hug. There is a way. I've seen when people get uh, awarded you know, uh, MBEs and all of these things, if they get knighted or become sirs or ladies or whatever, there's a first, they meet in an, a room earlier and they're told, when you come into her presence, this is what you do. You need to kneel or bow down or curtsy. And then she will talk to you first. There is a whole process. There is a protocol because you're coming into the presence of someone more powerful and greater. How much more with God? When we come into to God's presence, when we come to Him for salvation, we come the way that He tells us. You see, what's the problem here with Uzzah? And I heard this, I forget where I heard it, years ago as a youngster, I think it was Leonard Ravenhill or A.W. Tozer, listening to one of their sermons, and he said, Uzzah thought he was cleaner than the dirt. <laughs> and that stuck with me, and I've since heard it in many other sermons. Uh, I don't know who, who's stealing from who, I don't know. Uh, but you see, that's the point. Uzzah thought God needed his help. He thought, I'm cleaner than the dirt. Okay. You're not. We are not. The dirt hasn't sinned against God. The dirt is cleaner than you and me. Nature doesn't, hasn't not sinned against God. It's not breaking God's laws. We have. And so Uzzah, Uzzah is actually full of pride. Who does he think he is? He hasn't come with humility and brokenness. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you can add nothing to your salvation. Absolutely nothing, not an iota. No matter how sincere you are and you think I'll do some good things, I'll do some nice things. I'll help God a little bit. That's blasphemy, absolute blasphemy. Every religion works on that basis. You do your bit, God will do his bit. And false Christianity works on the same basis. And so this story, I want you to see, is, is God's grace to us. He's trying to get it through our, our skulls. We're not cleaner than the dirt and we cannot provide for our own salvation and we cannot contribute to it. And we come to him on his terms. We have to humble ourselves and repent and receive the free gift of salvation. It's a gift. And as we'll see when next time or in two weeks whenever, when David does get it right, we'll see how. There's an understanding of the way God works. There's an understanding that there must be sacrifice. Not our sacrifice. It's not that you save yourself by 
by being good or giving money, all of these things. It's a sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He laid down his life. And so uh, the Lord Jesus himself, when he comes to earth, he says, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to be served. I I don't need help. You're the guys who need help. I've come to serve you. That's why the gospel is so stunning. That's why it's offensive to so many people because they don't have a category for a, a God who humbles himself and serves us, lays down his life for us. Continues in verse 11. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. We're not sure if David's angry with himself or angry with the Lord, but he's angry. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, and David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? David is full of fear. How is he, how is he going to live with God in Jerusalem? See, that's the great question we should all be asking. How can sinful people like us be in relationship with a holy and righteous God? Maybe you came here and you're like, well, I actually come here, Lord, please, I need help with my marriage, I need help with my finances, I need help with this. That's not your biggest problem. This is your biggest problem. How are you going to live with a holy and a righteous God? All those other things will take care of themselves. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You, need, you and I need to be right with God. And so David is saying, how can, I, how can I live with God in Jerusalem? He's afraid. This is a holy and a righteous God. So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, verse 13, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Okay, this is quite almost, almost humorous. Uh, Obed-Edom is a Gittite. It means he's a foreigner he's from the city of Gath. He was a Philistine. Okay? So you can just imagine, they're like, this is pretty dangerous. Who should we give it to? Uh, <laughs> there's a foreigner nearby. Yeah, <laughs> you have it. <laughs> uh, and isn't it amazing? We've been seeing all the way through that the, the Philistines are the enemies of God. And yet, look what happens. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Again, the gospel is not based on your ethnicity or your background. And this story is not God is nasty. God wants to bless people. God's not a bully. He wants to do good to people. Yeah, you can see that. He blesses this man's household. Everything prospers. But if you don't, if you refuse to come the way he's told us to come, if you refuse to humble yourself, if you refuse to acknowledge your sin and that you're not, that, and to say, I'm dirtier than the dirt. If you're not prepared to do that, to acknowledge your sin and say, I cannot save myself. It's not a five-step program. It's not a seven-step program. It's not a 12-step program, however many steps you want to add. It's to humble myself and in childlike faith receive the free gift of salvation. 
If you refuse to come that way, then all that remains for you is that you are going to pay the price for your sin yourself. You will have chosen to face the wrath of God. Augustine says this, that hell is, is what people have chosen. And he's right. You've chosen to reject God and you want to be free from God and so God gives you what you want. And, and to be free from God's presence and to be free from his attributes and his character is hell. And so God is not mean. He's not looking for opportunities to judge people. He had been so gracious. They had already done loads of things wrong. They'd put it on a cart. They'd done all of these things. And God was patient and kind. He's not nasty. God is holy and just and compassionate and kind. And He wants to do good to people. But you have to come the way He has prescribed. You have to humble yourself. And so this ark representing the presence of God, the throne of God, representing the gospel, is the focal point of Old Testament worship. It, it gets its own special place in the temple, this holiest of holies. But Jeremiah says in chapter 3, he says, They shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed. It shall not be made again. Okay? If you've watched Indiana Jones, and uh, you know they search for the Ark of the Covenant, you won't find it. Okay, it's gone. Don't worry. Okay, here Jeremiah says it is gone. It's not made again. It's forgotten. We don't need it anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Jeremiah is prophesying about the time that will come when the Ark of the Covenant is irrelevant. It was a symbol of the presence of God. And the reality has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't go to a, 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 a geographical location anymore. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to try and find, rebuild a temple. We don't need to find the Ark if it's in Ethiopia or wherever people say it is, all of those things. We don't need that anymore. We have the substance. We have what it pointed to. We have Emmanuel, God Himself. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. He is the one, the meeting place with God. You want to be right with God. You want to know how, how can a sinful person like me live with a holy God? It's because of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Represents God to us and represents man to, to God. Who fully and perfectly obeyed the law and then sacrificed himself, laid down his own life, shed his own blood. So that we might be accepted. John says this, John 1 verse 14, The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's literally the word. It's pointing back to the to the tabernacle in which was the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus Christ is the meeting place with God. And so in closing, to challenge you on that, this story is God's grace to us. It is not a story showing God as capricious and He's, he's a tyrant. He's just mean or grumpy sometimes. This story is full of grace. It is showing us the... Uh, 
People, the only way to be saved is if you humble yourself. God does not need your help. Salvation is all of God, not even 0.001% of you and me. And that's why it's good news, okay? That's why it's good news. It's not up to you and me. It's not how good do you have to be to be saved. It's a free gift. But if you refuse to humble yourself, if you refuse to come his way, then the consequences will be the same as Uzzah. You think you'll add your little bit. But the good news is, no, humble yourself and you'll receive the gift of salvation. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this powerful passage. We thank you for your grace to us in giving us so many narratives, so many powerful, powerful, memorable stories throughout Scripture. We thank you for this, this story that shows that when we come to you, we must come the way that you have commanded us to come. There isn't another way. It's not all roads lead to Rome. All religions lead to God. We're all worshipping the same God. It's nothing of the sort. Lord Jesus, you did not say you are one of many doors. You said you are the door. And no one will come to the Father but through you. There is salvation in no other name. And so, Father, we ask that you would work by your Spirit. If there are any here who have never bent the knee, if there are any here who think they're good people, even claim to be Christian, they, they, they think that they add their little percentage, and so they're worthy of salvation. Oh, Lord, work by your Spirit. Give them true humility and repentance and faith. And for your children, Lord, it's not as though anything changes. We can never add anything to the salvation. We must always come with humility. And we thank you for your love to us that you keep us humble. You humble the proud. We praise you for that, Lord. So please work in a wonderful way by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.